Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. It's January, which means that I am in the snowy streets of Park City, Utah, reporting on this year's Sundance Film Festival. For the next week, I'll be gathering the best critics on the ground here to talk about each day's premieres on the podcast. So stay tuned and also subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to keep up with our dispatchers, interviews and more from this year's Sundance. Hello again from the Sundance Film Festival. It is day four and I'm recording yet another podcast this time uh, fairly late in the night, I gotta say. And I'm always grateful to the guests I'm able to rally together after darkness falls. So thank you to the trio joining me today. I will ask them to introduce themselves. Let's start with Maddie, who was just on yesterday's podcast. So great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, It's a pleasure. I'm Maddie Whittle, assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. And then we have two guests that you have heard on the podcast several times before. Abby. I'm Abby Sun. I am the director of artist programs at the International Documentary Association. And I think since the last time I was on the podcast, um, I am now also editor of Documentary Magazine. Ooh, okay. And Vadim? Hi. Uh, Thank you also for having me back. Vadim Razav with the somewhat unwieldy job title of Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine. We love it. We love a diversity of uh, occupations uh, on the Film Comment podcast. All right. So uh, we've seen a lot more movies since yesterday's podcast, and we'll try to get through as many as we can before we doze off or just uh, lose steam. But I thought we'd start with a movie the three of us saw together today, uh, which is War Game by Jesse Moss and Tony Gerber. Jesse Moss has another film in the festival. He also co-directed Girl State. Uh, But yeah, I don't know, Abby, Vadim, uh, one of you wants to just describe the film and your kind of initial takeaways. Vadim just pointed at me. So this is why I'm speaking. I just want that on the record. Um, so, yeah. So, um, actually, this film is quite girl state or boy state-esque. Yeah. It is a documentary that takes place in one location. And it has it, it's about a program. And it has a discrete start and a discrete end. Except instead of dealing with high school teenagers wanting for pretend office, this is a... Uh, it's still pretend. It is a war game that is put on by a nonprofit called Vet Voices Foundation. And it is imagining how the president of the U.S., fake president of the U.S., um, and his team of advisors and cabinet members might react to a violent insurrection 
um, on another election certification day, another January 6th, after what happened on January 6th, 2021. Um, so this is a film that takes place in one location. Yeah. Um, and we see essentially a, a war game. Um, imagine kind of the council table at you know, from Game of Thrones, except this is played by acting uh, governors, senators, mm. former high-ranking members of the military, and former veterans who run this nonprofit organization called Vet Voices, who are running this war game. It has some interludes beyond the six-hour war game into the personal lives and motivations of the um members of the nonprofit who are involved in putting together this war game, but it essentially tracks chronologically what happened setting up this war game at the beginning and what happens at the end. Mm. Um, It sounds like it could be a psychological or political thriller, um, but I think for me this is the greatest tension in this film. I mean, it it sounds like a reality show. I mean, it has a lot of components of a reality show. It also has a lot of components of a Dungeons and Dragons game. (laughs) I will say that uh, this movie should not be confused with The War Game by Peter Watkins. Which, you know, when I saw War Game for a second, I thought maybe there was a new restoration. I love the War Game. I mean, I think it's like one of the greatest movies ever made. And it's interesting because it is also, I mean, it's a different kind of fake documentary or uh, uh, reenactment or, you know, speculative uh, sort of documentary, I guess. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. And it is also not War Games, (laughs) which is... The uh, young Matthew Broderick starring Delight that I grew up watching and uh, think of every time I hear any title by that. So just a quick note of disambiguation. Um, I, you know... I don't think the movie was very different from what I expected it would be. And yet it grated. Um, I found myself extremely annoyed (laughs) by it. Um, I think that this is the problem I had also with Girl State, which I talked about on the first podcast a little bit, is that this is the kind of film that doesn't quite question its premises. So the premise of this movie is that there, you know, a bunch of ex-military people, or not just military, but people from the government and the military, are confronting this seemingly catastrophic threat. What if the military turns on an elected government in the way that coups, military coups, have happened in other countries? And it begs a lot of questions about the way the military is structured, the way law enforcement is actually vested with power, uh, what exactly people are trying to save when they say, like, trying to save democracy in a bipartisan fashion, like what kind of what is democracy to them. And it never questions those terms. So it feels like a promotional. It's absolutely a fundraising tool right. for the foundation. For the foundation and its exercise. Because um, it makes the point that the foundation wants to make, which I think is a worthy point, which is that the military branches are not doing enough to weed out the white supremacists within their myths. Um, and it does this by um, basically 
promoting the military as a place of supposed diversity. It, it's kind of incredible how, you know, DEI language infects, um, you know, the ideal the ideal of our, our military apparatus. But it also does not explain the mechanics of the war game. When we're talking about an actual war game or an actual Dungeons and Dragons games or things like negotiation, um, seminar, case studies at business schools, the way that these programs are set up is that they're basically points given there is we so i should note we, we didn't have we didn't talk about this yet but it this war game not only simulates the president's council table and the media mainstream media covering this six-hour event but it also simulates in war game language the red cell which in this uh game is the religious um, order of the Knights of Columbus. Order of Columbus, which the is order of yeah, Columbus. a sovereign citizen group. Yeah. yeah. And you have these like bearded guys yeah. in some room yeah. like coming up with so uh, the way that faked videos and, and, and alarmist tweets. Yeah. So the way this would work in real life is that there are points assigned to everything that each group does. And once, you know, a certain points level is reached like that triggers the next event um but this is all very clear for example we learn at one point that in the state of arizona and the capital that insurrectionists have taken over the capital and they've like held the governor hostage or that there are hostages and it's just kind of given to us as kind of back um style news um there are also you know various things that happen um but yeah but And then also, here's the really interesting thing. At the end of the film, we learn, so also at the end of these war games simulations and the end of, you know, case studies at business schools, you always actually are told what was the structure of the game, yeah. how many points things were worth, what is the highest value win condition right like, like what counts as a good or bad outcome exactly yeah. you get all of this analysis and it turns out at the end of this film that that analysis is actually confidential and it's actually only going to be given by this foundation that voices two members of congress and high-ranking members of the military and the audience will not understand what it is that actually happened in the film which makes it so nakedly promotional you know i mean it just it's like to learn more i guess fund us and so we can help save the country or something they could have had a qr code i mean it could have gone a little differently yeah. um i think that um the utility value of the movie aside questionably there is there is a there's an underlying premise here that you have both identified with slightly different emphases which is you know and it's true that it has this kind of uh fundraising quality to it but it's a true believer kind of proposition mm -hmm. and the proposition is basically that there are still sac sacrosanct norms and institutions that we can agree on as being nonpartisan pillars of the american experiment which would include the idea that the military is fundamentally a non-political enterprise, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. <laughs> which right. which right there is like is going to be a little yeah, bit of a problem. Yeah, and that's the premise to question as a documentary maker going into you know being invited to film this sort of a project. And and so and so what I what I think some of what's happening here is that you know this is a movie that's made truly in good faith by with with the with the belief that these things are true. And that they're worth extolling and they're worth repeating and that what's happening here is a worthy thing to happen. Mm. When we were talking after the screening outside, Abby brought up the point that there's kind of a, a, a fear mongering quality to it. You know, that this kind of scenario is something that we should be, you know, really mulling over. And so, you know, by putting that fear out there, yeah. the organization can then fund 
uh, funded sophomore. And I do want to underline that aspect, this fear-mongering aspect. I mean, there's repeated black and white stills from the Jan 6, 2021 uh, riot which just, you know, flash on screen every now and then to underline someone's kind of doomsaying or alarmist statement. There's something, I think you hit the nail uh, on the head, Vadim. It's, there, there's a true believer aspect to it, but when it's like a documentary, the, a documentarian approaching this kind of a setup with that kind of true belief, it just feels like promo. There, are, I mean, there are some totally different questions about like how the movie is shot and the form of it and all that kind of stuff. But um, also placing it oppositely up uh, relative to Girl State, you know, in the Girl State film, the premise is that these girls are involved in this political program, and they actually reach a political conclusion for themselves, which is actually this is all a bunch of nonsense yeah. because they're telling them that they have to cover up when the boys are around and they're in a conservative state and they just end up like dismantling at least a little bit like the whole enterprise, which is like a genuinely political thing to do. And this does not happen in uh yeah. in, in working yeah, at all. And I, I I I liked that. That was the thing I liked the most about Girl State, in addition to, as I was telling Maddie last night, um, young high school debate girls uh, love to see representation of that particular personality type. But I also thought that that film also doesn't adequately question its premises, which is, is this not, not just like, is this program, but is this sort of political formation the way to address women's concerns? Right. Is a Supreme Court, is, uh, you know, the way that the Congress works, Do these are these actually effective tools of addressing the concerns surrounding women's autonomy and bodies, which come up sometimes in, like, the talking head interviews. But even that film, even though it, it like, allows the participants and follows them as they dismantle the project a little bit, does come to it as a bit of a true believer in the idea that something is to be gained from simulating the practices of electoral representative democracy at a young formative age. And I think we can definitely conclude at this point because Jesse Moss has not only made Boy State and Girl State with his producing partner Amanda McBain and, um, you know, uh, War Game and The Mysterious Mr. Boot, I believe, uh, with Tony Gerber, but also has he made the Peter, the Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, how do you say his name? He made the Pete Buttigieg. Like he judge. made the okay, okay, I can't say this. Yeah. He made the Mayor Pete documentary. <laughs> um that you know, this is a filmmaker who is deeply invested in representative democracy yeah. um as a a really valid form of um, political participation. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of just something that I think with his films that we have to just accept yeah. because those are the last films that he's made essentially. Um, and I find, and I find the gesture to be in some ways a little bit touching and mm-hmm. it's in, in the films are in widescreen and there's attempts to actually like compose for widescreen, which is kind of an ennobling kind of thing to do visually. Mm-hmm. And like, on some level, I'm moved, you know, just by the by by the the sincere belief that radiates that these are ultimately things that are worth engaging with and defending. Mm. But the other part of me is just like the republic is over, you know, like we're done, like we're not doing each other any good. We should wrap it up. <laughs> and I don't believe in any of these things. I certainly yeah. don't believe in like a kind of weird like 1980s like um 
reach across the aisle and work with Tip O'Neill to like save America type mentality. Like yeah. we're well, we're well past it's, it's that. It's so it's very passe, especially in these circles. I feel, or maybe I'm I, I maybe. <laughs> but politics aside, do you guys think it's an engrossing film? War game. War game. No. Not at, at all because. The stakes were never clear, like you said. The machinations of the game itself were not clarified. It wasn't clear what was a good or bad outcome. So, no, I I did not really feel engrossed or gripped. You know, I didn't feel like it operated like a thriller. And one one thing I want to say about, you know, I think what I do appreciate about documentary filmmakers is, like, getting that distance from the subject's you know, project, beliefs, agendas, even when you're on their side. And I know we're not going to get into this film too much today, but for example, Union by Brett Story and Stephen Mang is, you know, another film screening here, which is about the efforts to form a, the basically the uh, the trajectory of the Amazon labor union at the JFK 8 uh, Fulfillment Center in Staten Island. And I happen, you know, I know that uh, Brett and Stephen are allies, you know, they are very much like allies of the labor movement. Part of their motivation is to give a platform to the struggle. But at the same time, the film very much is able to take a step back and and question the true belief of the people who lead that movement too, you know, and make space for that kind of uncertainty, which is what I think is the responsibility of a filmmaker. And so that's where I feel like this film really fails. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can move on, I, I think. It's, yeah, yeah. I, that, that pause. Um, God, I there was no elegant segue to any of the other films on the docket today. So I'm going to just invite Maddie to jump in at this point to talk about stress positions. <laughs> so I, uh, I haven't spoken to Vadim about this film yet, but I think we had very uh uh different opinions of it i loved stress positions uh i it's this is the new film uh by director theta hamill um it centers on this character named terry goon who's played fantastically by the great john early uh who is uh uh man going through a divorce with his richer older husband and still living in the house that he had previously occupied with his now ex uh, while also taking care of his 19 year old cousin who is a model from Morocco who has been in an accident and uh, undergone a severe injury so he's bedridden uh, in a big leg cast and uh Basically, the plot is this sort of sprawling uh, 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 sequence of events that befall Terry and his friend Carla, played by the director, Theta Hamill, uh, who is, I found to be kind of a revelation. I think she's hilarious in this role, in this very kind of deadpan, dry mode. It's hard to try to summarize this film in plot terms because it's not a plotty film it's a it's sort of a hangout film it's sort of just a frantic stress inducing uh, uh just anxious mishmash of of social forces colliding and different people's motivations kind of uh, uh coming into contact uh in surprising and uh entertaining ways i'm very curious 
to to hear Vadim's uh, read on this film. We should probably also mention that the movie takes place in the summer of 2020, so there's a large yes, that's COVID significant pandemic lockdown. And Terry, the central character, it. is very uh, uh, conscientious. Zealous. Yes. yes, zealously conscientious. Yes. Um, so stress positions. First of all, just not my sense of humor. So that's that's just something that we can't really work around. That's just me. Um, but let's just table that. Uh, the the movie i mean also was it just all shot on a zoom lens i kept being like man this is it's a lot a lot a lot of um just following and and keeping up um the premise of the movie is that all of these people are like involved in queer life and that they're all liberals but except for like the landlady who's got like, like a crypto Trump person. Um, but they're all like bad at being liberals and they all like manifest various like forms of racisms, which are like relatively harmless, like not understanding geography, but also indicative of as a, well, you know, as opposed to like not tipping their like Grubhub person or something like that, you know, they, they, they try, but they're stupid. And they're stupid and impulsive and but they're stupid in different flighty. ways and they're stupid about different things and so then as audience members you know who are granted the right to sit back and look at these kind of caricatured like you know slabs of millennial life we can be like oh wow they're all a little full of shit maybe we're all a little full of shit and i really don't like that you know i'm just like i that feels really like an evasion of responsibility in some ways and i wouldn't mind if i thought the movie was funny and since I don't think the movie is funny, I have a lot of time to think about what it's actually saying. And um, a more charitable reading is that there's these like really like kind of annoying but maybe sympathetic white people, and they're the gatekeepers to like queer life in New York. And this 19 year old Moroccan immigrant has to like go through them in order to get access to like the thing that he wants. But I don't really necessarily think that's true. I read an interview after I saw it with Theta where she talks about um, the movie in terms that are more sympathetic than maybe I was ascribing to it, how in her kind of positioning of it that she's showing people who are all basically way too dependent upon the internet to give them the knowledge they need to understand like geopolitics and that that puts them in a weak position. And I think that is true of what the movie is showing, but I also think that the movie basically thinks that this is just how people are and this is just how things are. And I think this is why people hate New York, honestly, is like that kind of mentality. is Because like it's it's so specific, but it's, its specificity does not lead to a universality, nor is it sharp about the specific things that it's about. And it has that kind of Instagram comic, you know, quality mm. to it. It really, it just kind of pissed me off. Well, it definitely, <laughs> there is a complacency that this film depicts where, you know, there's a running joke uh, uh, surrounding this question of what constitutes the Middle East and what constitutes the politics, the geopolitics of the Middle East. And uh, uh, I, you know, this, this sort of obliviousness and sort of blithe, complacent, happiness of these characters to or willingness of these characters to not give a shit or to only half give a shit is kind of upsetting i'll, I'll i will very much give you that it, if you if you step back and look at these characters and their their willingness to sort of just run with their own ignorance uh it is damning and depressing 
And as, uh, you know, New York residents ourselves, Brooklyn residents specifically, which is where this is set and, and of the millennial cohort, uh, it was to me, it was a very successful satire of a reality that is, you know, maybe somewhat regrettable. But I think there is a uh, uh, often entirely regrettable. But the way that the film, I think, redeems this sort of low key crisis is by depicting this social structure of this sort of found family of queer millennials who sometimes hate each other's guts and uh, but clearly love each other in in kind of uh, unexpected and powerful ways. And I think that in some ways the solipsism perhaps is excused or apologized for, but ultimately maybe just explained by the fact that this social network is as sort is sort of by necessity very inward looking i don't know if i'm making a strong case for this film you're making you're making a generous case that is is definitely like textually based and i think also very much aligned with what the movie would like you to think and the thing that you identify there which is also the thing that bugs me is that quality of love because that quality of love is is assumed to be extended to the viewer as well and the viewer will also come to love these people and I think, well, I hate all these people. And you know, like, and you know, I know, I know, I know who they are, and I know where they exist, and I don't hang out with them for a reason. But you can make a movie about people that I hate, and it would be valid because then I would learn something, or they would be reframed, and I would have like, a, there would be something that would be happening. But when I feel like that, I'm merely being asked to love them as much as they love each other, then I bristle, and that's that's kind of the thing. How does queerness come into play with this? I feel like that's a lot. kind of the key. <laughs> I mean, like there's a yeah. lot of. I mean, there's, 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 I mean, there's separate threads. I mm -hmm. mean, the, um, I guess the objectification of the nephew is a big one. The objectification, the nephew, the fact that they're like all like, you know, sexually progressive people, but in fact, they're all like horny little, uh, you know, monsters. Uh, there's a whole strand about how, um, Data Hamill's lesbian girlfriend has novelized her transition, but has like gotten the whole story wrong and exploited her and harvested her for that. There are kind of degrees of sexual curiosity. There's John Early's recurring frustration as he screams, not everyone is trans. So there's like, a, uh, you know, various negotiations of uh, how much liberalism is too much liberalism for some people. Um, but I, I think actually it's kind of funny that we've both been talking about it and then you ask that question and it's like, yeah, because in I'm fact, like... much of the text is explicitly about queerness and neither of us mentioned it, yeah. which yeah, it was... to me points to a problem with the movie as well, that we're not immediately bringing that like front and center because it does feel a little defanged that way. I disagree that that's a problem. I think it's embedded in the texture and I think that that's maybe the point is that it's not so much the narrative driver, you know, queerness, the queerness of these characters is not determine the determining factor of what yeah. happened queer people can be shitty liberals too yeah this is a, I mean, precisely the thesis of the movie and it was kind of the thesis of theta hamill's like podcast as i understand it because she used to have a, a podcast uh what was called a uh, nympho wars and that was that was kind of her thing she was like oh trans people can be shits too you know which is like fine but i'm not sure that's really a, a, a you know a, a position that you need to get into for like 95 minutes of screen time or whatever it is <laughs> I will say, uh, you but if know, it was funny. I wouldn't mind. Well, and to that point, I think for me, a huge part of the success of the film hinges on the performances. And as you know, I, I 
happen to uh, really love the sense of humor that animates John Early's comedy. I was not I had I have not listened to Theta Hamill's podcast, but this kind of makes me curious, too, because I think she's got there's this this very wry sensibility that's on display here that just worked for me and landed with me. And it's uh, at a certain point, that's what it boils down to, I think. All right. Well, uh, love to have a hearty debate on the podcast. And I think we may have a, a few more coming our way. So let's maybe talk about um, Presence, which was another big movie here. Well, big in terms of buzz. Actually, it's a 86-minute, very, very lean, mean film. It's the new film by Steven Soderbergh. And I don't know, Vadim, you saw it, I think, before me. I saw it today. What were your thoughts i kind of like it i mean it's is it it's an interesting visual experiment should we i guess we should specify a bit of what it is yeah i mean i'm not sure what the spoiler dimensions of this kind of that's thing what are. that's what i was trying to figure out i mean very simply put a family moves into a new home sold to them by julia fox uh who plays the realtor and the mom is lucy Liu, uh and they have two kids and the mom is kind of I guess she's like this high power businesswoman who is up to some possibly illegal stuff. And her husband is this like much nicer, softer guy, always trying to like soften her. And she has this like very honestly disturbing preference for one of her two children, the older child uh, who is a boy. And her daughter, the younger one, is undergoing, you know, is going through some grief because she lost one of her friends and classmates recently. And maybe I'll leave the details out, like how they die, because you like it. Two girls died, one of whom was close to this uh, uh, this girl, Chloe. And so you, you learn kind of along the way how they died. Um, so that's kind of the setup of this family. And the, and the older child, Tyler, is sort of I don't know, like a jock. He's like a swim jock. He's, and he's a monster. He's he is a monster. He's a bully. But come on, that we don't we learn that eventually. Anyway, they move into this house. But the thing that immediately happens in the movie before plot is that there is a very active point of view. The camera has a very active point of view, and when these people first enter the house with Julia Fox. It's moving around. The perspective is a little distorted. It's going closer and then moving farther. And you realize that it's representing some kind of spirit in the house. Like throughout the movie, you're taking on the point of view of some kind of spirit or presence. And over the course of the film, different characters start to feel that presence. And it like kind of links up with the dynamics that I laid out. The brother-sister dynamic, the mother children dynamic, uh, the deaths and the grief, all that sort of comes into play. I think that I initially thought it would be kind of a more straightforward haunted house movie. Then I thought it was actually going to be about grief and, you know, how how the process of bereavement can get sort of like literalized or projected onto, you know, presences in the spaces we occupy. It's actually neither. It's like a very weird little... Uh, I don't know. Is it a thriller? It's a weird little horror. I think I, think thriller, I called it a, drama. Uh, like a family melodrama with like a supernatural element. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I I think I was underwhelmed by it. Ultimately, I mean, I had a lot of fun with this like formal conceit and the chills and the sort of you know thrills and chills of it. And the performances are great. It's quite funny. 
in several moments. But the plot is like, as time goes on, it's really thin and kind of cheap. Like the reveals at the end, the, the plot reveals, not necessarily the formal sort of reveals at the end. The plot reveals are, I thought, kind of cheap and salacious and and sort of typical. The script is janky. It's yes. janky. It's janky yeah. and it's like teenage violence, very like kind of made sordid. And I, I don't know, I just... It, it is it is a little bit of a bummer because this is David Kep's second screenplay for Steven Soderbergh. And the first one was Kimmy, which was like a pretty airtight setup to just like do a bunch of set pieces mm-hmm. and also had good dialogue. And this is more like, yeah, it's a little unpleasant. And also like the, you know, where it's going is kind of like, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know about all that. Um, like it has a little, like some kind of lifetime cautionary yeah. tale aspect like the plot which also seems like you didn't you could have it had some other plot and still had like the yeah, same formal probably. gimmick but yeah if we put all that aside for at least half an hour this is all like super interesting stuff <laughs> like um you know so that, like i wrote about this in my reviews like for, like there have been attempts at making it entirely or mostly like first person uh pov before but uh never like this which is basically a question of camera weight it's like a 12 pound like dslr plus like rig thing and steven soberg is 60 and he's running around like he's like running sprints you know so like he is he is an actor he is the presence but he's also just like really fast you know like it's kind of wild and it's very steady at the same time it's very steady and there's no place so dynamic yeah Yeah. and there's no place to put lighting yeah you know and so like everybody is kind of at this merciless kind of glare so it doesn't look quite like anything you've seen before and like there, sometimes it's like very simple things. Like in the opening, when they go to um to look at the house when it's on the market, and it took me a second to realize why it looked weird. It's because there's no light bulbs in the kitchen, mm. hanging over the the kitchen island. So you're just looking at like these empty shelves. You never walk into a house and see that because that's yeah. not what happens. And then later they're lit, and it's like, oh, what a difference it makes. Also for him because he doesn't light anything ever. So mm-hmm. like this is this is a a big thing. Um, sometimes you forget that the camera is subjective because it settles down in one place. It does, and then it suddenly moves, and then you realize it's oh, very it's alive. <laughs> and so it yeah. kind of creates these, and especially if you've spent a little too much time in the English department thinking about like free and direct discourse, it's like a little bit freaky. Um, you know, like what who is the narrator and what's the gap between how smart the narrator is and how dumb this presence is because maybe the presence isn't very smart but then if the camera does something that doesn't make sense is it the presence that's doing it or is it just like easier for the camera it does seem that the presence knows more than any of the characters and we are let in on that information so he talks about he thinks that as the movie goes along at the first the presence is trying to keep up uh-huh. and it's like slower and like falling behind as it goes on it becomes more adept at yeah. keeping up with people did you pick up on that at all did you feel that i didn't i thought that it was actually very even keeled throughout in the sense that it would be steady observant you would forget that there was a presence especially in sort of these um you know like family scenes like at the dinner table or something and then the the kind of shock in, would come from it like the presence like flinching or something or getting too close to someone's face which is very unlike a tradition unlike traditional cinematography or something yes yeah. and also steven soderbergh has been doing like pretty heavy master shots since like bubble you right. know like for you know the first parts of his career were much more like handheld and like loose and like mm-hmm. quote-unquote jazzy and then sometime around bubble he's just like master shots are primarily what i do that's yeah. that's my thing and so it is really just counterintuitive for him to be like i'm gonna zoom all over the place it's like interesting to see someone like Lucy Liu, who's very charismatic and, you know, in this, she's very beautiful and well-dressed. Mm-hmm. And the camera never sort of settles on her like 
it usually would on like a beautiful actor in a movie. I don't know. Like she's like, like all the other actors, she's like scrunched into a corner. Sometimes mm-hmm. her proportions are stretched. So it's a very like counterintuitive and and a kind of viewing experience that does keep you on your toes. I mean, to put it in a very banal way, you really feel the experience of watching. So I do think it's like very interesting for all these reasons and all these other kinds of like theoretical things about the gaze and the viewer. But, you know, this is a self-financed Soderbergh genre movie that has come here as an acquisition title and has not been acquired 48 hours after we're talking about. So like the populist dimensions... produce a better script, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think. But I think this is, he, this is one of the tensions of his career is he's always just like, I try to make populist films. And I was like, you think you're making populist films. These are not necessarily very populist. This is like a very weird thing to do. And people want to watch like a a normal horror movie and then you just do this to them and they're going to get confused. It does sound like experimental, like a ghost story. Well, to me, it's somewhat like unsane or something, you know, it's kind of schlocky and populist, but with a clever formal gimmick. I don't know if that qualifies as experimental. I mean, what does? Let's not go there right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to see who acquires it. Uh, I'd be curious to see how it plays. I mean, I would encourage people to seek it out. I'm just not going to give it my unqualified, you know, recommendation either because um, it falls short in certain ways. But it's very watchable and one of the more interesting films I've seen here, definitely. Just on the sales market at this year's Sundance, at least in the documentary field, it is healthier than last year. There's um, been an actual acquisition announced, not something that was a pre-sale and only merely announced at Sundance. And there's rumors that there's lots of other deals that are currently being negotiated and hotel rooms and conference rooms, so on and so forth. And I've heard that there are streamers and platforms and major indie distributors who are here with a budget on acquiring something. So it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Well, I have a question for you. Uh, has Realm of Satan been acquired? Okay, that was my attempt at segueing into Realm of Satan. So oh, we'll just okay, uh, let me do a different segue. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, deals taking place in uh, hotel rooms and uh, uh, and meeting spaces. That sounds like the Realm of Satan. <laughs> uh, is this is this my time to shine? Uh, <laughs> A decade after going to Buffalo, New York, for his immaculate short film, Buffalo Juggalos, about juggalos in Buffalo, Scott Cummings has returned with a portrait of the Church of Satan. Uh, The opening titles say it's in collaboration with the Church of Satan, which is very much like um, Acura. It is a a movie about the Church of Satan uh, whose members are portrayed in plotless, mostly tableau shots within their spaces. It is done with the aesthetics of the members of the Church of Satan, who are all very into aesthetics. The Church of Satan, I think it would be fair to say, have not been underexposed in the news over recent years. Or even at Sundance. Or even at Sundance. <laughs> because of uh, Hail Satan. I, I was just going to say that Hail Satan was three years ago. Or not, four years ago. 2019. Yeah, four years ago, yeah. And they you know, they were always good about getting into the news and like freaking out Breitbart conservatives. So, um, But the premise of this is that this is like more like a... Uh, an aesthetically collaborative way of of envisioning them the way they would like to be seen. And that involves um, kind of portraying their fantasy lives as well as showing their kind of normative routines. Um, I found this to, I I love Buffalo Jugglers. That's just kind of an immaculate uh, piece of work. And this is um, very much stylistically in the same vein. And it just wasn't really hitting for me. 
And I was sitting there being like, why is this not as enjoyable for me when in so many ways it's so similar? And I, I think it's the aesthetics. Just for me, it's like the Church of Satan, their aesthetics are a little like cheesy. Like they're, you know, like you see these people in the movie, like there's this woman who's sitting there, she's got like um like uh, crocheted portraits of like Elvis, you know, like framed. And I was like, that's a very specific type of Americana chintz that is just not my thing. So I think it's a cross-stitched. It's a cross-stitch, yes. Yeah. I, I lack the lingo here. <laughs> um, but, you know, even they do magic tricks. They have like tiki bars in their, in their, in their basements. Like, it's just, like, I don't know. Like the whole, the, the, I guess the whole, the, their whole thing is just not my thing. <laughs> Well, so here's the thing. It's a lot less salacious and built upon spectacle than Buffalo Juggalos, which is a really strange thing to say about the Church of Satan. Um, but Buffalo Juggalos is like the annual rally of all of the Juggalos right. who come to Buffalo. And they're like aggressive and they're kind of dirty and they're nasty. Yeah, and there's like monster cars and trucks and like mud everywhere yeah um and so it you can think of it as like burning man but like mud and trucks and jugglers i i don't quite understand how this all fits together um and i am way less of a fan of that short than vadim it sounds like um and so I liked Realm of Satan quite a bit more because the aesthetics are actually, for me, quite unexpected um, compared to Hell Satan, which played a lot more into rituals and into the politics of the church, so on and so forth. And this one is really more contemplative. It plays with slice of life. And you learn that the Satanists are pastoralists. They're back to the landers. They're gardeners. They have animal familiars. Um, there's also, yeah, I mean, it's so the film starts out with a goat giving birth. Um, there's, you know, lots of scenes of being outside, not just inside. Um, and it, it, it progresses. I mean, structurally, it's kind of nominally through the seasons, it appears. It's got a little bit. I, of... I would be lying if I said I had a firm grasp on its structure. Like, yeah. you may be. I, I, I mean, there is a there's a thing that happens halfway through. Yeah. But we had talked about it earlier, and you didn't think that it actually turned the movie into a narrative film. The The Church of Satan, like one of the members, its house gets burned, his house gets burned down. And so, like, this kind of world that has been presented, like, on its members' own terms certainly has this, like, violent intrusion from outside. But yeah. then nothing particularly it's, really comes with it. It's tableaus, but we do have a few recurring characters, a few recurring protagonists, and it sometimes returns to them. Um, and there, there are some people who become familiar, and then other people who... I mean, I mean, we never know their names until the credits at the very end. Um, so for me, it's actually quite easy to lose track of who it is that we are following, except for the interior of their homes. Um, but it is quite expansive when it comes to what types of tableaus I set up. Um, it's outside. We see, again, like, you know, for me, this is like the Church of Satan as, you know, back to the earthers or whatever, um, but also living in suburban upstate New York or it looks something like that. Um, but then there is, there's there's what Vadim just described. There's a few points of punctuation. There's that. There's um, a BDSM scene, a sexual liaison, um, and it ends in a kind of spiritual, supernatural play. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's some VFX in the film too, the like fantasy there's a, there's a kind of outsider observer character who experiences, I, I don't know, I, I don't know. 
Uh, the, the Carlos the, Ray Goddess his movement? Body is that what leaves I call it? His, uh, yeah. Yeah. His, his, his corporeal... Which I, which I assume, if I were more uh, knowledgeable about Satanist lore, would, would be coming from mm. some kind of imagery related to some kind of Satanist text. Like, I don't know, but I would assume. Well, I'm going to stop you right there because that is a perfect segue to a movie that Maddie and I wanted to discuss, which is Love Lies Bleeding. <laughs> a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of uh, bodies taking on uh, different forms. A lot of bodies uh-huh. taking on <laughs> lots of forms. You wanna you wanna just uh, describe it briefly? Yeah, so and the, and we uh, I feel like people are gonna be talking about this movie definitely. More, so we can just keep it like kind of brief. And, sure. Yeah, this is uh, Love Lies Bleeding is a new film from Rose Glass, who you last uh, saw behind the camera with Saint Maud uh, a few years back, uh, and this is a quite a different film. Uh, it's in a very operating in a very different register than Saint Maud was. It. In many ways, I see it as our generation's answer to Bound, which is a compliment uh, in, you know, in the highest terms. I uh, ba- The basic premise of it is that uh, Kristen Stewart uh, is this young woman who works at a gym in kind of r- this rural small town, New Mexico, uh, and I thought it was Texas, but I actually don't know if they ever specify. It's on the border with Mexico. That's all. Well, that's all I know for sure. So the only reason I think I thought it was New Mexico is that there's an FBI agent who presents his card, and, and he's says, at the new the New Mexico bureau. We got a close reader here, friends. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> gotta get up pretty early. Uh-huh. Anyway, I uh, so they're in New Mexico, and this other young woman comes through town, and she is a bodybuilder. And is aspiring to, uh, she's preparing for a a bodybuilding competition in Las Vegas that she sees as an opportunity to launch her career and establish her uh, in this world. And uh, they uh, become involved, these two women. And become involved. What a well, you know, what a respectful way of saying <laughs> this. Is, this movie has so much sex in it. It's an incredibly <laughs> sexy movie, and the tradition of Bound. Yeah. I mean, it's really like palpable. Yeah. And um, basically, a, also in in the mode of Bound, shit starts happening, and in a in a very kind of noir mode they have to find their way out of this tight spot involving uh Kristen Stewart characters Kristen Stewart's characters uh father and sister and brother-in-law all of whom live in this small town and I'm I, I'll just leave it there yeah involved in some shady dealings some we'll shady leave it there. shit yeah yeah I mean yeah you saw it early morning I saw it like late night last night and it was it was a very good like midnight slot movie um very fun to watch with that kind of crowd um i think you liked it a little more than me but i but i still liked it a lot i mean i think it brings together a lot of disparate elements and themes and genres and tones in a way that's constantly surprising i mean there's this whole bodybuilding arc and the movie has this kind of interest in bodies and there's definitely, I mean, it's a queer love story, but there's like this um, real kind of, something I haven't really seen in a narrative film like this before, you know, like bringing together queerness and bodybuilding and the ways in which they are related in these women's relationship, you know? Yeah. 
and specifically, uh, in many ways, the film reads as a as an anti steroid PSA. Um, there's much of the plot hinges on the character played by um, Anna Baryshnikov, who is the romantic opposite to Kristen Stewart's character. Her name oh, is uh, Jenna Malone is her sister. Oh, oh, right, right, okay. Um, but she's uh, the bodybuilding character, uh, Jackie. Uh, is begins to take steroids in the process of her training, and much of the plot hinges on her anger. And you yeah. see her anger develop over the course of the film in tandem with her body, and that becomes really pivotal to the action. Yeah, but also like when she first starts taking steroids, it's like a very erotic scene. Kristen yeah. Stewart is like injecting her so butt. Where, where do you want it? In the butt. Yeah. yeah. And it's just this like kind of, and then, but, and then sort of you wonder, is this sort of an allegory for like tea or, you know, but then yeah, it goes in this like very different direction. The steroid use turns out to be this like very dark thing. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And specifically related to rage. I mean, specifically yeah. the, the, and that's something we don't see much of is women getting violently angry. Violently. Recurringly over the yeah. course of this. And that's dark, but that's also like toward the end of the film without giving too much away like amazingly sort of fantastically liberating and empowering yeah. yeah and so there's it's it's just bringing together these things and then there's this kind of cartel background you know of corrupt cops and like a mafia dawn and there's a family uh story to it so it it just manages to bring together so much and is constantly very unexpected and at one point starts to take a kind of fantastical turn, which I didn't see coming at all, but which felt like it felt very smooth, actually. Like it just the the tone of the film really um, like lends itself to like all these different, you know, plot turns, like none of them feel jarring. Uh, there's some like kind of really great just noir stuff, you know, like crime thriller stuff that's done very well. And I think Kristen Stewart makes for like such a good noir heroine and i will say about the fantastical elements they are subtly and uh, uh they're subtly integrated enough to leave some ambiguity as to whether they're metaphorical or or not yeah. which is uh, uh, a similarity that this film has with saint maud and yeah. and as a fan of saint maud i was especially uh uh sort of stunned in a good way by the conclusion to that film which is similarly asking kind of a sneaky question about where supernatural and spiritual happenings uh, 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 are situated in sort of this metaphorical plane. Are they actually happening? And to whom are they happening? Yeah. And who is witnessing them? And that sort of playfulness uh, is even more present yeah. in this film in a way that I found very satisfying. My one complaint is that much with like much like presence the plot at some point is just, just like, I don't know, it just becomes very typical and contrived and sort of cheap, like cheap and salacious. And again, it feels like, you know, the filmmaker wanted kind of a scaffolding to stage a lot of really great set pieces and themes. And at some point, it becomes irrelevant, like what the actual backstories and the motivations are. I'm specifically talking about some of the revelations at the end, which really are revelations that are like 
hyped up throughout the film and then you learn like what's driving some of these characters and it's like pretty it's not very impressive or um doesn't really pay off but you know i i I really think that the film manages to walk a very delicate line with a lot of panache and style there's also one moment in the film i won't say where it is where one of the two protagonists says to the other, no, there's nothing wrong with you. And the whole theater laughed because they're both clearly such fucked up people. (laughs) Like these characters are fucked up and they're so toxic and their relationship is toxic, but you really feel for them and they're both so attractive and (laughs) And you love them to make out. Their love is so clear. It's a very loving film and very funny. And there's this one moment, oh God, well, I won't say it, but there was this uh, joke delivered by Kristen Stewart that is just so the timing is so impeccable and it just really reminded me how funny she can be we don't think of her as a comedic actress very often or at least I don't but she just nailed it and and I the whole theater burst into laughter at this it's kind of a throwaway joke almost but in any case I thought this movie was for all that the plot is not necessarily uh, uh, doing things we haven't seen before, so much of the thematics are going in original directions and are layered with this comedy and this very convincing lived-in love story that, to me, I, I just it, it, it worked for me. Well, it worked for me is as good a note as any to end a podcast on, but I did promise Abby some time to shout out some under the radar favorites she has one in particular so take it away thanks davy co for this um you know platform for dedicated cinephiles um but i just want to highlight one film that was completely unexpected for me um it's it's one of those films where i had a gap in my screening schedule and i knew the filmmaker uh who made the film and decided to go and support somebody and um i was just utterly engrossed from beginning to end i think the synopsis and the sundance program does the film a great disservice uh this film is uh shuchi talati's uh, feature debut and also her f- first i believe uh fiction film uh, i know her as somebody primarily in the documentary space for my professional work and my day job as a documentary shorts director and um it's described, uh, Girls Will Be Girls is described in the Sundance program as a sexual coming of age at a boarding school in the Himalayas, uh, which sounds like Mad Lib's uh, synopsis of a film and like something perhaps deeply cheesy. But I found this an utterly engrossing, completely in control film that's actually about power um, and um what happens in a very controlled um, society and how women actually enforce uh, restrictions on each other. Uh, the main premise of the film, actually, it sounds like it's uh, you know dealing with a lot of similar issues as Girl State, 
to be quite frank. So the main premise of the film is that there's a boarding school, it's co-ed boarding school, and the main character, Mira, um, has been elected the first female head prefect of the school because the school has just recently allowed the girls to also be considered for the head prefect position. And kind of all the conflicts and the tension in the film derive from her role as enforcing the rules on her fellow student and on the fellow um, female student. And her mother is a former student at the school as well, um, who is perhaps trying to not replicate the problems um, that she went through. But things get a little bit tricky when Mira gets very infatuated with a new male student. Um, and uh, I mentioned the mother like not inconsequentially because the film really does move into psychosexual drama territory involving the mother and daughter. And it gets a little bit Damn, okay. really kind of intense. Okay, um, girls will be and, girls, eh? Yeah, oh. so it's much more interesting, I think, mm. than the synopsis. And I think it's a wonderful film. Wow. Well, always love a good shout out on the podcast. So I will definitely be seeking out Girls Will Be Gold tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Abby, Maddie, Vadim, for joining me for this late night recording. And now I shall let you sleep. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 